Hey there, John. How are you? I'm all right, Ethan. How are you? Doing all right. Thanks. So I think we'll use this episode the same way we have the last few to take stock of where things are in Israel and Gaza. Last episode, uh, last Friday, rather, we talked about the diplomatic blitz that Biden and Blinken had undertaken uh, to avoid escalation in this conflict, a wider regional war. The question that I think a lot of our listeners were wondering, though, coming out of that conversation was, why is America so invested in this conflict to begin with? So before we get to that, let's just chat a bit about the events of the week. Uh, We woke up on Thursday morning to news that a relatively small contingent of Israeli armor and infantry had made a ground incursion into the Gaza Strip. This activity isn't necessarily new. We've heard about special forces operating in Gaza for a few weeks now, but this was by far the most substantial operation to date. So what were these troops doing? Yeah, I think you're right. There were there were um, some images that came out yesterday of, you know, tank columns moving into Gaza, which is different to what we've seen so far. And I think they've got a, a couple of different objectives. I think the first one is probably to sort of bait uh, a Hamas response to see what would happen once they made that ground incursion along that border region. Um, you know, there were zero casualties and and no sort of reports of any kind of major firefights or anything like that in this operation. So it, it seems like that border area with Israel uh, and, and the Gaza Strip will be largely unguarded. I mean, obviously this is speculation, but that's what it seems like. Um, and I think the, the other sort of element of this operation uh, yesterday was, you know, to try and prepare for a broader invasion, take out some things like guard towers, anti-tank mines, um, that kind of stuff. It was a very limited operation. It was only a couple of hours long, I think, um, is what I read. So I think it was kind of just a very small testing probe, which is paving the way for what we think might be to come. Right. Uh, which would be a, a much larger full-scale assault in coming days, weeks, maybe even by the time we publish this. Yeah. But, but a lot of people are wondering why Israel is waiting so long. Here's what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had to say about that question, speaking, as you'll soon find out, through a translator. What we see before our eyes is only one thing and one thing only, to save our country, to achieve our victory. We are showering hellfire on Hamas. We already eliminated thousands of uh, terrorists, and this is but the beginning. At the same time, we're getting prepared for the ground invasion. I will not tell you how, when, and how much. I will not go into all the considerations that we take to heart because most of them are not even known to the public, and that's how it should be. It is good that that is the way so that we can secure the lives of our soldiers. Okay, so we heard there that the public is not privy to the timing of this next phase of the war. But but John, put on your your speculation (laughs) cap here. Uh, What do you think? Why the wait? It's what we do best. Um, I I admit to being a little bit surprised that, uh, I mean, what are we, almost three weeks now since the original, um, you know, horrific attack. So I admit to being a little bit surprised that they haven't moved already. Um, I think the most obvious reason that would explain that um, is, is what, is what Netanyahu said, right? Uh, to protect the lives of Israeli soldiers. I mean, this is not going to be, if this ground invasion does come to pass, it's not going to be an easy proposition. Um, you know, some estimates say that there are about 50,000 or so potential enemy uh, combatants. Um, that's between Hamas and the, and the various other um, 
groups that Hamas is aligned with in the Gaza Strip. Um, but I, I think I think it's important. It's not even about the numbers here. You know, that's a very kind of academic way of approaching this. We've learned over the last well let's say 20 plus years really from numerous battles around the world, Fallujah for the American army, um, some of the battles in Ukraine that have been fought recently. Um, but, but when you're fighting in a dense urban environment, you know, really street to street, house to house kind of environment, the odds are now hugely in uh, favor of the defending force, you know, the advances. And I use the word advances there very, very sort of advisedly, but the advances in the in weaponry, you know, mines, anti-tank rockets, drones, these kinds of things, it really means that one person kind of hold up somewhere where no one can see them can take out multiple armored vehicles. Um, you know, so, so the, those odds are really in the defender's favor. Um, and, you know, Hamas has a lot of those tools. Uh, they have drones, we know that anti-tank weapons probably supplied by Iran, long-range rockets, um, these kinds of things. Um, and, and also they have this tunnel network that I think has been estimated to stretch something like 500 kilometers long, which, you know, for comparison, the New York City subway system, for those who've visited that vast underground labyrinth, is about 400 kilometers long. So that kind of gives you a sense of the scale of these tunnels that are um, you know, estimated to be under the Gaza Strip. And obviously Hamas knows those tunnels well and will use them to hide and attack from. So it's a, it's a really difficult proposition for Israel, as I said. So I think that explains at least partially why, why they've waited. There's also a diplomatic element here, right? I mean, I, th- I think it's fair to say that after almost three weeks, I guess we're in day 20 uh, of end-to-end media coverage of what is, you know, Safe to safe to call a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. Yeah, uh, global opinion has started to turn a bit against escalation, at the very least. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I actually, interestingly, I think the global narrative started to turn within about 48 hours of the original attacks three weeks ago. Um, uh, you know, I say global narrative in the sense of outside, perhaps. Israel's staunchest allies. Um, perhaps the narrative took a little longer to turn in the US and, and maybe some places uh, in Europe. But I think everywhere now is on the record as urging caution. Um, we heard French President Macron say during a meeting with uh, the Egyptian president, uh, Sisi, that, and quoting here, a massive Israeli invent, uh, intervention that would put civilian lives at risk would be an error. So that's pretty pretty, you know, unambiguous where the French stand. And I think uh, British PM, uh, Rishi Sunak, he also recommended a pause. The Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, um, said during his state visit to the White House this week that Israel's got to do everything it can to prevent, um, you know, un- unnecessary or extra civilian deaths. Um, you know, I-, I think a ground invasion certainly wouldn't tick any of those boxes from any of those leaders. Um, and obviously, that's before we get to President Biden, who obviously the US is Israel's staunchest ally. Um, and he's been you know, front and center supporting the, um, Israel and offering his support to Bibi Netanyahu. Um, and he has been apparently behind the scenes lobbying Netanyahu to delay the invasion. So you know, that's, that's the global position, I think, right now. And that, that point on Biden, that dichotomy that you, that you mentioned, We've, we're hearing that's apparently intentional. Uh, the idea, I guess, being that by supporting Israel, quote unquote, hugging it closely, as Biden is, is wont to say, by supporting Israel so loudly in public, he can restrain Netanyahu a bit in private. Right. I think what we're seeing is, is Biden probably learning the lesson that 
President Obama learned, which is that uh, I'll choose my words very carefully here, but I think Netanyahu is <laughs> a, a pretty prickly person to have on your bad side. Um, Nicely put. You, we got to play this clip to remember how poor the relationship between Obama and Netanyahu was uh, and how much Obama struggled to constrain specifically Israeli settlement growth during his tenure. Here's that clip. An open mic during last week's G20 summit caught President Obama and French President Nicolas Sarkozy complaining about Israel's prime minister, according to a report by Reuters. I cannot bear Netanyahu. He's a liar, said Sarkozy. Obama, according to a French interpreter who was translating his remarks, replied, you're fed up with him, but I have to deal with him even more often than you. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, um, I think this is the world's worst kept secret, right? That Bibi Netanyahu doesn't have much time for uh, the truth. Uh, let me say that. Uh, I, I remember I was listening to a podcast recently where um, uh, a re- a, an advisor to former British Prime Minister Tony Blair was saying that um, the diplomatic advisor to Tony Blair was once asked, "Oh, you know, before my meeting with um, with Bibi, what should I know about him?" And he and apparently this guy called Bibi a twenty four carat bullshitter. So he's beep. been. <laughs> you missed the beat there, but <laughs> sorry, oh, I missed the beat. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So this is this is this is not new, and I think it's fairly widely known. But I guess more seriously, you mentioned the settlement growth there, the Israeli settlement growth, and and I think that is one of the key issues um, to this whole conflict. Uh, We might save that for another time, I think, because it's just such a complicated issue. Um, But it's worth noting, you you mentioned Obama didn't have a whole ton of success in restraining the Israelis from expanding. And I think it's important to note that Biden, despite his, you know, support for Israel right now, he hasn't had a whole ton of success in constraining their settlements either. Yeah, there's that wild story uh, from when Biden was vice president in 2010 uh, where he touched down for a visit in Israel and Bibi's government announced new settlement construction the very same day. So Just a coincidence, so, I'm sure. Just a coincidence. So, and John, why this, we're going back to the original question I posed at the, the top of the conversation. Why is America so invested in this conflict? It seems like a headache. And you know, Bibi seems like a headache too. What what What's behind this? Well, I mean, it is. It's, it's one of the most complex issues on... On, on, on earth right now right um, but I think I think it comes from a genuine closeness um, with Israel and the Israeli people the Jewish people um, you know the US has the largest Jewish diaspora in the world by far um, so there are those really like people to people meaningful cultural ties it's not just sort of some right. you know cold real politic assessment it's it's kind of much deeper than that but on a more practical level, um, I think the U.S. Middle East policy since, you know, I mean, you could pick a date, but at, since at least the Obama administration, it's been kind of geared towards constraining Iran in the region and, and Iran's kind of regional ambitions in the Middle East. Um, and of course, it's progress towards a nuclear weapon, obviously. Yeah. Um, President Obama pursued those goals. He obviously signed the infamous nuclear deal uh, back in 2015. Um Netanyahu opposed that, as many many may yep. may remember. Yeah, uh, President Trump then took a you know a similar kind of approach in the sense of constraining Iran, but far more confrontationally. Uh, he obviously pulled out of the nuclear deal. He ramped up sanctions against Iran, um, and then folks will also remember that he even assassinated uh, the the Iranian general uh, Soleimani, who had for decades been in charge of the part of the Iranian military that is responsible for running all these Iranian proxy militant groups like Hamas 
and Hezbollah. Um, I think Trump, the Trump administration's thinking was to use Iran as a bit of a wedge to push for normalizing relations between Israel and some of Iran's skeptical neighbors in the region, like the, the UAE. Um, and then we skip forward to Biden, and he's kind of tried to meld elements of both of his predecessors' um, approaches in some ways. I think he, sanctions have remained pretty tight on Iran, um, but we also saw a little bit of an effort, at least early on in his term, to get back to a nuclear deal, right? Um, and obviously, lastly, I think Biden, his biggest project um, was to try and create normalization, peace between Israel and the de facto leader of the Arab world now, which is Saudi Arabia. Yeah, right. The idea being that by linking all of these Iran skeptical countries together, bolstered by Israeli defense technology and Saudi and Emirati economic might, that they could essentially isolate Iran gently back out of the Middle East, and the administration could finally refocus on their biggest concern, which no one needs to even say it, but it's China. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And that's not to mention Russia, which has popped its head up of late as well. I can't help but sort of note that in in what is like an all-time bit of tragic timing, um, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine the other day that, uh, and I've got the quote here, Although the Middle East remains beset with perennial challenges, the region is quieter today than it has been for decades. I'm going to resist the temptation to dunk on him there because there, but for the grace of God, go go we, Ethan, in, in this business. Um, but it is certainly some poor timing for, for that uh, that bit of analysis from Jake. Um, so I, you know, obviously now the Middle East is not the quietest it's been in decades. Uh, and I think the big worry now inside the White House is that an Israeli ground invasion uh, could set the region ablaze and force the US to devote resources to the Middle East that it really doesn't want to, that it was trying to do the opposite of, right? Um, oh, and all, you know, against all of that, the fact that the US House of Representatives went 21 days without a speaker until yesterday uh, kind of suggests to me that the US government isn't really aligned across all three branches um, in a way that gives me any confidence that it's going to be able to deal with these kinds of issues in in an effective way. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by What Could Go Right. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. That's why you should listen to What Could Go Right, an acclaimed news podcast from our friends at the Progress Network. They dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from geopolitics to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future. Check out the link in the show notes to feel more hopeful. All right, welcome back. So, John, you said before the break that an Israeli ground invasion, using your words here, could set the region ablaze. Uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, we, we covered this in the newsletter a little bit uh, last week, um, but it's this idea that, you know, Arab citizens around the region are, are really, really angry right now, um, especially after the, the hospital attack, um, which, you know, rightly or wrongly, we don't need to get into it. They have all attributed to an Israeli airstrike. Um, and Arab leaders, especially in Jordan and Egypt, both who have you know, their countries have decades old ties with Israel. I wouldn't say they're friendly, but they're certainly normalized. Um, they have this very delicate tightrope to walk now. Um, you know, these leads aren't elected. Um, they don't necessarily have that 
popular legitimacy that they would no doubt crave. Um, <laughs> and in some cases, they've got uh, large Palestinian populations who are agitating for, you know, action, right? Um, and I think most importantly, and if we, we sort of expand from Egypt and Jordan to other Arab nations in the region, the citizens of these countries, they really do oppose normalization with Israel. Their governments have kind of moved towards these deals a little bit more. Um, but in Morocco, for instance, only 20% of the people actually support the Abraham Accords. Um, and that's probably a lot less after Way the last less. couple of yeah, yeah, after the last couple of weeks, right? Um, so I think the the sort of the, the risk of setting the region ablaze that I was talking about is that we've seen these leaders, like particularly Egyptian President Sisi, um, who are totally allergic to protests for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> but they've actually called- Just going so far as to build new capitals to avoid uh, having to deal with protests. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, protests are not the friend of the authoritarian unelected leader. But but Sisi actually has called for people to flood the streets. Um, you know, they're trying to manage those protests, but he actually openly called for it. Um, is that what he wants them to do? You can't imagine that he's pretty, that he's excited about the idea, no. but it's probably the only way he's trying to like, vent their anger, channel their anger towards a, a target that isn't him without risking his own political future. And and all of this concerns American foreign policymakers too, right? Because, I mean, these are leaders with whom they've developed trust, especially, you know, Abdullah in, in Jordan, certainly Sisi up until the uh, Menendez incident a few weeks ago. But, you know, <laughs> right. lot, lots of trust, lots of uh, intelligence sharing. So any popular uprising that we uh, could see in the Arab world, like we saw in the Arab Spring, would be a big problem for the US, I would think. Yeah, I don't know that I'd put it as high as trust, but I would say they've developed effective working relationships for sure. Um, yeah. and, and I don't think it would just, you know, an Arab Spring-like uprising or even, you know, something similar um, is, is not just a big problem for the US. I think probably a big problem for Europe um, as well. I mean, it's not much of a stretch to say that the Arab Spring and the events around that created some of the conditions, the power vacuums that uh, allowed ISIS to emerge. Um, you know, obviously there were lots of reasons for ISIS, but that's certainly one of them. Um, and then, of course, there's the disaster scenario of a wider war, um, and, and you know, perhaps. Uh, protests in other Arab countries displacing millions of people who will, you know, move towards places like Turkey and Europe, creating political headaches for those countries down the line. Um, so, long story short, I think I think the US, Europe, a lot of regional governments are really worried about what an, an Israeli invasion might kick off elsewhere in the region. If you get my meaning, yeah. But John, we, we've got to remember that Netanyahu and his new unity government are considering their domestic audience as well, of course. Given we've talked about all the reasons that Netanyahu should potentially avoid uh, any mm -hmm. escalatory step in Gaza, can we really expect them to take all of this into account, though, after the events of October 7th? I think it's a great point. I mean, all politics is ultimately local, if I may sort of misuse that, that famous quote. But I mean, Ethan, you're our resident analyst of Israeli politics. So can you shed any uh, light on, on that? <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. I, I mean, I think... I think one really important dynamic here is that uh, Netanyahu really loves to be in power. He just that's there are a lot, you know there are a lot of reasons for that, but that's the dynamic that overwhelmingly explains Israeli politics. At least yeah. since he returned as prime minister in, in two thousand nine, um, I think you you could almost understand the decision to form a unity government in this context. I mean, he wants to share 
some of the blame for this operation if it goes wrong. Yeah, let me, let me just jump in there real quick. Give us the 30-second version of what you mean by unity government, because I think that can be a bit confusing sometimes when we're talking about all these different governments. Right. So, I mean, Netanyahu went into coalition with a group of fairly extreme far-right lawmakers uh, when he came back to power in 2022. He's since sort of sidelined them and entered a partnership with a guy named Benny Gantz, uh, who's a centrist, former general chief of staff, uh, tons of military experience to, to lend some legitimacy to his government. Interestingly, there there are other uh, centrist folks in Israeli politics that have refused to join this unity government, probably because they know what Netanyahu might be trying to do with them, which is use them as a foil for his own political right. ambitions. But you he, know, he doesn't have a lot of trust in the political establishment in Israel, I don't think, at this point. No, no. Yair Lapid uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu are not uh, close, on, probably not on speaking terms at the moment. Um, but, you know, as for the political forces, the domestic audience uh, that are playing into to Bibi's decision, I can, I can tell you what I've heard from my family and friends there, which is that they want to see Hamas gone. I, I, don't, I don't think they'd settle for anything less than that outcome. Um, mm. You know, I had one person tell me something that stuck with me, which was, you Americans might be right about what we should do next, but you with your matcha lattes, you've never <laughs> lived through an intifada or lived through an October 7th. You can't possibly understand how scared and angry we are. Um, and that, that really resonated with me because, you know, Israelis might be fed up with Netanyahu. Polling certainly suggests that they are, but... right. I think many agree with the path that he's taking. And if anything, they kind of want the invasion to happen sooner rather than later, even if they know it will be gruesome and ugly and that many of their friends and family may die. Uh, interestingly, I think some analysts have said that one thing that might explain the delay here, John, is that Netanyahu knows the sooner he starts the invasion, the sooner that the invasion ends, the sooner the war ends, and the sooner he might be out of power. So maybe he'll delay and you know, indefinitely. Boy, that's a that's a cynical bit of work there from the, from those analysts. I I like to think that they're delaying because they're focused on delay or you know avoiding civilian casualties. But I mean, if we arrive at the uh, the right result, no matter how we get there, I guess that's the most important thing. Um, just a, just as a final note, um, I thought it was pretty interesting to see uh, the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in DC this week in in your hometown. Oh, did you? Yeah, I you know I, I follow my Prime Minister with a magnifying glass, waiting for him to say anything <laughs> interesting. <laughs> but yeah, he was he he met with Biden this week, had a state visit, all the all all the trimmings, um, and at the same time, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi was in town for meetings at the State Department, and, and you know Australian China relations have been improving a little bit of late. Um, that's a whole different story we can cover another time. Uh, but I, I kind of wonder whether China is hoping to use this crisis in the Middle East um, to try and maybe lower the temperature with the US a little bit. Uh, you know, as we said earlier, having the US focused on Ukraine, the Middle East, uh, means that it's probably less focused on China, even if it would like to be more focused on China. Um, and China has some massive problems of its own right now, economic problems, tons of them. Yeah. So I think it is probably something that China wants, despite its bellicose rhetoric that it uses against the US. So, you know, it's another interesting dynamic to be watching. And I imagine what scares American foreign policymakers the most is that China might use this moment of turmoil in the Middle East to, you know, take advantage of its aspirations in the South China Sea. Right. All good points, John, on, on what American foreign policymakers want to do. 
Unfortunately, I think in this moment, what happens next is sort of out of their hands. It's in Netanyahu and his, you know, uh, unity government's hands. Yeah, I saw Biden interviewed um, yesterday saying that, you know, I've I've talked to Prime Minister Netanyahu, but the, ultimately the decision is his. And, and that's what it comes down to. Um, yeah. It's taken a little longer for Israel to make its next move. Uh, I'm surprised, uh, but it still does feel inevitable that they'll invade. Um, so I think we'll be watching very carefully to see how all the things we just played uh, talked about, how they play out. Sure will. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ethan.